1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash culture. And by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just four hundred and sixty-four dollars every year for phys ed. Go to heart.org slash let them play to learn more and take action. And by the message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up,
0: extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. This is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from San Francisco edition. It's Wednesday, November 11th, 2015. On today's show, Steve Jobs is the new-ish movie from director Danny Boyle and screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. It stars Michael Fassbender as the legendary co-founder of Apple Inc. Was he the think-different visionary he believed he was, a garden-variety sociopath, or both, or something in between? We'll discuss, and then Oculus Rift may sound like the sequel to Vanilla Sky, but is it maybe the sequel to all of reality itself? (laughs) We went to the Facebook campus to (laughs) to investigate the future of radically immersive computing. And finally, is subtlety in literature or art really a virtue? We tease out the nuances in a happily crude defense of the obvious. Joining me today is Slate's editor, uh, Julia Turner. Hi Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic Dan Steven Tate. Hey,
1: Hello, Steven.
2: All right, presumably no business, we dig right in. Yeah. I Let's think so. do it. Okay. Steve Jobs is the new movie from director Danny Boyle. He of Help Me Out, Dana? Uh
1: Danny Boyle movies, uh 27 hours.
2: Slumdog Millionaire.
1: Uh 28 hours. Did he do that one, the zombie movie? Give us some days. Danny Boyle movies here. 28 days, sorry.
2: What's the best Danny Boyle movie? Wrong, Shallow Grave. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: This one stars Michael Fassbender as the founder of Apple as he struggles with computers, employees, and intimates that refuse to bend completely to his famous will to power, what one colleague famously called Steve's reality distortion field. The movie also stars Jeff Daniels, Kate Winslet, and Seth Rogen as the Woz, Steve Wozniak. Let's listen to a clip from Steve Jobs.
0: You don't think you're having a bizarre overreaction to a 19-year-old girl allowing her mother to list her own house? She
2: could have tried. She's supposed
0: to stop her mother, that particular mother, from living. She gave pretend her blessing to sell the house and she did it despite me. I don't care if she put a pipe bomb in the water heater. You're going to fix it now.
2: She's been acting weird for months. She's turned on me.
0: Fix it. What the? it Steve take it easy fix it or I quit how about that I quit and you never see me again how about that
2: tell me what's wrong with you this morning
0: what's been wrong with me for 19 years I've been a witness and I tell you I've been complicit I love you Steve you know how much I love that you don't care how much money a person makes you care what they make But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father. That's what's supposed to be the best part of you. And it's caused me two decades of agony, Steve, that it is for you. The worst. It's a little thing. It's a very small thing. Fix it. Fix it now. Or you can contact me at my new job,
2: working anywhere I want. All right. Well, Dana, watching the movie and watching that clip as well, uh, it occurs to me we're seeing the internal drama of a hugely self-absorbed human being play out on the screen. And, of course, that person's name is Aaron Sorkin.
1: <laughs>
2: this is very much Aaron Sorkin's movie in a lot of ways. Don't you agree? What, what'd you, first of all, what did you think of the movie? Did you like it?
1: Yeah. Um... Uh, I, I did like it, yeah I think it was a little bit of an underachieving movie um, but, but I think it accomplished what it set out to do pretty well and I agree that it's a Sorkin movie more than anything else Danny Boyle actually took over from David Fincher who was originally set to direct oh, this I didn't know that, yeah. and, uh, and I feel like it is really dominated by the dialogue you don't see that in this, in this clip but it's, it's sort of a theatrical movie really, it's, a, it's, it's like a three act play, how many of you out there have seen the Steve Jobs movie? Can clap applaud, clap applaud. so we can hear you Yeah, it seems like maybe a third or so. This is the the third movie about Steve Jobs that's come out in the last two years, right? Two of them were fiction films. There's this, and there was a 2013 movie... They have annoyingly similar titles, too, by the way, called Jobs, just Jobs that starred Ashton Kutcher as Steve Jobs, which that was sort of a, a laughingstock movie in some ways, not necessarily because of Kutcher, who was pretty good, but the, it was extremely lionizing and, and uh, I, like, idolatry. It was a work of fan fiction, sort of. Um, and then there was a, a documentary about him called Steve Jobs, The Man and the Machine, an Alex Gibney documentary that came out this year. I think of those three projects, this is the most successful, and it may be because it sets out to do the least. It's, it's, it's this three-act play structure that follows him through three product launches. And I'm not going to remember the correct name for each product, but, you know, the, one of the earliest Apple prototypes. Then the next computer that he tried to launch with his own company that was a failure. And then finally, I guess he's launching the, is it called the iMac? That yeah. bright-colored, right, the desktop? And so it's only... The movie constrains itself to just showing those those three moments. And it never actually gets to the launch, interestingly. It always fades to black before his actual presentation begins. So you see the warm-up. You see him backstage, nervously preparing and having various figures from his life, including Waz and his his ex-girlfriend and others, come and browbeat him. And, and that scene, Kate Winslet's character, who's his sort of right-hand woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a very long answer. But I I did like this movie... But I'm not sure that we need to know that much more about Steve Jobs. This movie sort of flopped at the box office, did not perform according to expectations. And it occurs to me that maybe this much mythologized figure, we're kind of done with him right now. Maybe we don't need to ponder the mystery of Steve Jobs anymore.
2: Oh, interesting. Uh, Julia, it does have this three-act structure. It's derived from the Walter Isaacson biography, which was distinctly unhagiographic. Um, One interesting feature of this structure is that he crams into each scene prior to the product launch primal encounters with the three important people, according at least to Aaron Sorkin and Danny Boyle, important people in Jobs' life, his daughter, Steve Wozniak, and the CEO of Apple, who essentially engineered his exit and he has primal encounters with each one of them prior to each one of these product launches. Uh, how did that strike you as a dramatic uh, conceit? Did the movie work for you?
0: Well, I mean, I really enjoyed The Social Network, Aaron Sorkin's last foray into explaining uh, the technology that defines the modern age to us. But I, I thought it was a good movie, but I did not think it was smart about technology at all. Um, and I felt a little bit about this movie like this was a very good play rendered faithfully and beautifully on screen by a bunch of the actors I'm most excited to see in the world do anything. I think is amazing. I think Kate Winslet is very good in the role. I feel like Daniels as Scully um, is basically just his newsroom character like transposed into this movie, and it's a little bit distracting how much his scenes feel like extras from newsroom, but I liked newsroom, okay, so. Um, in any event, but I, but it doesn't feel to me... In the same way that that the other movie didn't feel like it was really about Facebook, particularly this movie, almost doesn't feel like it's about Apple or Steve Jobs. It's sort of about this... Guy and control and this conflict with his daughter and how he feels out of control of his life. It's very tidy. It's, mm-hmm. it's It posits that he feels like he can't control anything because he was adopted or given up for adoption as a child uh, and and sort of twice rejected before his parents took him in uh, and then wanted to control everything uh, in the world and thus his future and then finally he makes peace with his daughter because Kate Winslet Brow beats him and he's sort of redeemed at the end in a way that makes for nice storytelling within the confines of the movie, but doesn't really seem like it has larger meaning about jobs or how we should think about him.
2: Until you started talking, it didn't occur to me. It, this movie's Birdman. Yeah. Right?
0: It's just backstage. It's just like the the major life-affirming discussions we were having before we came on stage here.
2: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I didn't resent the shit out of having gone to see this movie, which is (laughs) is grade inflated to an A-minus, I guess, or a (laughs) B-plus. I'm not really sure. Uh, It seemed to me that Sorkin brought his preoccupations to the story and hit two themes very hard and somewhat successfully. First, as you point out, Jobs as an adopted child. He considered himself defective, defective. Because he was an adopted child, and he wanted to create something that seemed perfect when it came out of the box because he hadn 't been and I thought that note was hit uh, beautifully and uh, somewhat subtly <laughs> um, and then the second uh, theme, which is an interesting one when it comes to jobs, is as Sorkin has jobs say, the musicians play the instruments, the conductor plays the orchestra i 'm the conductor right because the question about that Wozniak has for jobs. Repeatedly is, what the fuck did you do? What did you do? You don't write, c- write code, you don't engineer, you really don't do anything. You're not a numbers guy, you're not a standard CEO. That's what Jeff Daniels' uh, role was. And so there's this sense that we're elevating jobs to a kind of modern capitalistic godhead, but it's completely unclear what skill set he brought to the creation of this specific technology. Um, and I thought the movie was... Uh, that kept the, line, the dramatic lines of the movie from being overly clear, precisely. As Wozniak asks him, he says, well, who's John, who's Ringo, why aren't I John? Wozniak, you all know the story of Wozniak and Jobs, I'm presuming, right?
1: <laughs> and this movie relies on that. If I can just jump in and say this movie relies on you knowing all these stations of the cross of Steve Jobs' life, which is an advantage and a disadvantage. I mean. It, Ideally, the movie would not have to rely on external knowledge in order to make sense. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like a biopic that's dutifully checking off boxes, right? So, so it, at least it does get to visit these little dramatic moments without having to plod through the story of the garage and the invention and him cheating was and all of that stuff, which mm-hmm. the Ashton Kutcher movie very much does plod through. The other thing that's
0: interesting about it is that it sort of sidesteps the question that's at the heart of the Biography, which is sort of, do you have to be a sociopathic asshole jerk in order to accomplish something world-changing, right? Something that, that really transforms... All right, how many people have iPhones in their pockets? Clap. Yeah, so, like, the classic narrative and, and the one that seemed to interest Isaacson about him was this question of, like, to what degree did being an exacting tyrant uh, like, create all this stuff that we love? Uh, and the movie sort of ignores that in a way that I liked, but maybe is part of why it doesn't connect, because it's not at the heart of the story in mm-hmm. some ways.
2: Right, well, I mean, there, so there's the Think Different campaign, which is going on in the background of one of these three set pieces, and it's, you know, using these iconic images of great creative visionaries of the 20th century, Gandhi, Picasso, and Einstein, principal among them, um, and the suggestion is that Jobs thinks that he belongs in that company, and I just don't know that Aaron Sorkin or Danny Boyle or Michael Fassbender the people who are making this movie I I wasn't sure whether they thought that he does and therefore they're showing you how the personal damage that that someone of that level of greatness can do to the people in their immediate intimate circle is forgivable in some morally complex way because they're bequest to all the rest of humanity. I don't think the movie is is saying that at all. I don't think it's saying that either, but are they inflating or deflating Steve Jobs in order to make the point they want to make?
0: Well, I guess that's part of why the movie didn't totally work for me. It sort of seems like they spend a lot of the movie deflating him because they don't... They don't allow him the bravura of being the tyrant whose assholicness is the thing that achieves greatness. Mm-hmm. He's just like a jerk on the side. He's just like a jerk in the green room <laughs> to this little girl who's his daughter for no reason. And that didn't create anything great that you yeah, have in your Yeah, I think pocket. the
1: movie is positing that, that his, his greatness and his, and his being an asshole are in some way braided together, no. Well, that's what I'm saying, that they
0: separate them in a really nice way. They're like, he was great and also a jerk and he was not great because he was a jerk he was just a jerk and you kind of have to deal with that but then at the end they give him this like charming redemption moment sorry guys (laughs) um which sort of takes away the the like subtle undercutting that the whole movie has has worked toward I mean it was nice I was glad they had a nice moment there was a nice moment at the end but it it seemed to take away that thrust of the movie for me
1: did either of you see the Alex Gibney documentary the other, that came out earlier this year, the other no. Jobs movie of the year? It ends with this moment. It's, I mean, In some ways it is, um, if you already know his story, kind of over-familiar. But it has some good clips and some good moments. But it ends with this very interesting kind of mystery where it actually ends on the image of Alex Gibney, the documentarian's face, reflected in his, in his iPhone. He turns off his phone, it becomes like a black mirror, and, and you see him reflected in it as he's kind of talking about the unknowability of this figure, who ultimately he couldn't kind of decide. He couldn't decide whether the portrait that he was painting was one of, of, as you were saying, a great man or this kind of tyrant. And uh, so to step outside of this particular movie and just ask you about Steve Jobs himself, I wanted to know, are you tired of hearing his story or do you think it could still be told in a way that you would care about? And... uh, and yeah, just sort of like, what do you see in, in, that, in that image yourself? Do you, do you walk away from all of these representations of him and, you know, the eulogies for him after his death a few years ago with a, a positive sense, a negative sense, a sense that he's a mystery who can't be penetrated? Do you just not care anymore? Well, what's, what's your job's take?
2: Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I would say that... I'm going to punt... <laughs>
0: I do buy that he was exceptional in some way, right? Like, not mm-hmm. Gandhi exceptional, but... Mm-hmm. It does seem like he wrought things out of nothing in a way that is impressive, and I remain impressed and somewhat irritated by everything else I've heard about him. <laughs> mm.
2: I don't know. I think the, he, he belongs, in my mind, next to the, the other great capitalist genius who standardized a means of making a product that then, you know, wove itself into modern life totally. He's more, to me, like Henry Ford than he is at all like Gandhi, Einstein, or Picasso. I mean, not really a visionary, but someone who understood modern industrial and postmodern industrial processes at exactly the right moment, and then created something about which you have to feel ambivalent, right? Like, how do you not feel ambivalent about the ubiquity of the automobile, how do you not feel ambivalent about the ubiquity of, you know, s- you know technology, right, of screens? Um, and, you know, it seems to me in the social network, this is what Sorkin was able to drive home in a very blunt and direct way about the legacy of, 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 of you know, of um, what's it called? Social networking, or what is it called?
3: Facebook? Facebook? Dr. <laughs>
2: Um, it connects us and disconnects us. But let's quickly, before we go, Michael Fassbender and uh, Fassbender and um, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet is terrific in this movie.
1: Yeah, oh, the casting is perfect. I mean, it's one of those like luxury product kind of movies, and I think they were positioning it for an Oscar for that reason, where everyone who's cast is sort of an A-list actor who does the best possible job with their role, I think, including Seth Rogen as Waz who has sort of a small part, but I think really kills it as well.
0: Yeah, I liked everyone, and I like Daniels too. But it's just Daniels does Daniels does Sorkin dialogue is like there's there's only one way to do that (laughs) apparently.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, with the proviso, if you don't like Aaron Sorkin, you know, there are people that are just that find him that style, the whole walk and talk, you know, the kind of insularity of the Aaron Sorkin world really grating. And uh, I can't watch that show, Newsroom. It's just it's too much of the same thing every week. I've just seen it a few times, but. But if you have some tolerance for that kind of snappy dialogue, you know, and the way that he can he can build a scene, I mean, he's really all a playwright almost. And mm-hmm. I think the movie is very enjoyable on that level.
2: All right. Well, the movie is Steve Jobs. It's directed by Danny Boyle, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet. It's coming to an iTunes <laughs> app near you, <laughs> any second or maybe not. Uh, check it out. Tell us what you think uh, thought about it at Facebook.com/culturefest. All right. Moving on. Julia Turner. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor.
0: It sure is, Steve. We are sponsored today by Club W. Humans have been making wine for 9,000 years, and that is also how long they have been confused about which wine to drink. Some people get a headache after they drink wine, but for many of us, it's the shopping part that causes the real headache. That is where Club W comes in. You go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions, and their algorithm creates a palette profile just for you. Then they send wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. I, indeed, signed up and got a palette profile taken, and I also told them I only like white wine, which is uncool, but true. And they sent me a bunch of wine, including a really delicious Alsatian blend, which I enjoyed heartily. So with Club W, you get premium wine, customized to your taste, at a third of what you'd pay at the store, uh, and you ha- they have a no-risk, 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you. But right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off their first order when they go to clubw.com/culture. All right, Steve, what's
2: next? All right, as God, uh, all right, moving on. As God is my witness, every word of what I'm about to say is true. Uh, the first time, not only at a gulag, excuse me, campus, the first time ever in Palo Alto, we pull into Facebook on one hacker way past the Facebook farmer's market past, past the Tesla charging stations and our Uber pulls up to building 18 into an expectant mother parking space <laughs> I take not eight steps and a bird perched in a tree shits directly onto my head laughter and, and I just want you to know, as God is my witness, when I say directly, <laughs> if the crown of your head had a crown, that's where it hit me. And I turn around, and I also swear to God, it was a dove. <laughs> a dove shit in my hair, not five minutes into my Palo Alto adventure, and I swear to God, I'm sitting there thinking it's a robot bird, and Zuckerberg is sitting somewhere with his finger on a button... <laughs> Anyway, in the Facebook bathroom, they have hand soap, Purell, and Febreze, and I doused my hair with all three of them, and had there been a habanero sauce, I would have used that, too. Anyway. Oculus Rift is a virtual display module you mount upon your head. To the outside world, you look ridiculous while your mind is being blown. And this is, by the way, it's true. That was D.H. Lawrence's definition of sex. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's true. Anyhow, what started as a Kickstarter is now a division of Facebook. It's growing and growing fast. The product is set to launch in something called Q1. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Good. 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 Anyhow, we went to Facebook to explore. Uh, we were not allowed to take any video. They were very worried that Dana would reverse engineer the goggles just by looking at them. <laughs> but they did let us record audio. Let's listen to our audio from our trip to Facebook. <coughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my
2: condition was in. Okay. So, feel free to look around. like. Just go ahead and pan around. Oh
1: yeah, oh wow. Alright y'all, Tyrannosaurus Rex is coming at me right now. (laughs) This is a very unfriendly first thing to program. (laughs) Don't do it! Y'all, I'm seriously at the top of a ledge of like a hundred story building.
2: Guys, I think it's really uncool the way you opened up the floor. (laughs) Can you turn that way?
1: Alright, a little hedgehog is serving me strawberries.
0: This is a very weird game
1: of tetherball. <laughs> I feel like I could be
0: one of those Olympic ribbon dancers.
1: I'm sitting in Bill Clinton's office in New York City. He's telling me about the Clinton Foundation. But I'm rudely not paying attention to the ex-president because I'm looking around his office.
0: <laughs> um, I'm jumping into an best repeatedly because of my lack of game experience.
1: Oh, you're a little person on the table now. Okay, I see, Henry, I see free-floating blue ghost hands. This is weird. Okay, hold on. Oh, that is cool.
0: Pink flying in space. That's great. Hey, Steve, I can talk to you with this puppet.
3: Yeah! Yeah! Oh, yeah!
2: <laughs> oh, my God. Um... <laughs> All right, what well, was mind blowing to do this, Julia? Why don't you walk us through it a little bit?
0: Oh, great. I get the job of trying <laughs> to describe virtual reality to people. <laughs> the whole point of it is that you can't describe it until you're in it. I'm curious, so these Oculus Rift sets have been kicking around, and there's developer versions, and people have done demos. How many people in the room have tried Oculus Rift? Can you clap?
3: Yeah,
0: okay. Oh, all right. A decent number. And another occasion for our conversation today, which we planned a while ago, um, but it turns out to be a fortuitous day for it because the New York Times Magazine uh, shipped a bunch of Google Cardboard viewers to its subscribers today um, so that there, the Times Magazine could, could do a piece of virtual reality journalism that everyone could see, which is, it kind of seems like virtual reality is arriving. Uh, so it's a fortuitous day to talk about it. What it is is you put this thing on your head and you look like a dope and you feel like you're in these crazy worlds. So these uh, Facebook developers and press people walked us through all of these uncanny realms. You heard us uh, yakking about some of them, including having a Tyrannosaurus Rex run at you and run over your head with its tail swishing, as you see in the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, stepping on top of a skyscraper and looking down hundreds and hundreds of feet below into a kind of Blade Runner ish metropolis, you know. Playing, you played hockey. I snuck up on you behind you while you were playing virtual hockey. You we were, you were very engrossed. <laughs> um, and uh, they also showed us some of the the more complicated advances where you can actually engage with your these sort of touchscreen controllers and virtually pick things up in the virtual world. So at one point, Steve and I were in two separate padded rooms, um, probably where we should always be, and managed to be synced up virtually and play like virtual ping pong with each other and shoot virtual guns at each other and be in a weird fake carnival space where we lit Zippo lighters and set off Roman candles and were able to shoot vases off a wall with a satisfying shattering sound. And then there were these orbs that you could smash and suddenly you were in space and it was zero gravity. Um, Whoa. It was like, right. I mean, this is, it's it's terrible, right? This is like describing a dream or describing a trip. Like it's, it's, it's hard to convey But I came away from the experience feeling like, holy fucking shit, this is the future. I have to show my children all the movies that I ever want them to care about in the next three years before (laughs) this is all the movies because, like normal movies are going to become flatties like they're going to be like silent films like nobody's going to everyone's going to be like oh it's so charming and some some you know in a hundred years some charming wonderful film critic will be like I really want to go study the work of Aaron Sorkin back in the flatty era and I'm going to write a book about you know his his verbal comedy and uh, you know but uh, but like the nor, it, it feels like this will become normal. It's so compelling as an experience for gaming, for storytelling, for, for like blowing your mind. And it, I felt like the entire medium that you love and study is about to go poof. Did you feel that way? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And what you say about showing your kids all the movies you care about in the next few years seems, seems so true in that the perceptual shift between having you know a two-dimensional rectangle in front of you and having a 360-degree space is really, in a way, is a greater shift than silent to sound, right? Because it, it has to do with all of your senses and, and your sense of um, space around you as well. Yeah. In fact, and I, I was thinking of early films the whole time, especially at that moment where you walked to the ledge, which was one of the first things we saw in the very first demo, um, walking to this ledge, and I don't think any of us stepped off it. Did any of you? Steve
0: did. I did.
1: What happened when you stepped Obviously. off Obviously.
2: Well, uh...
1: <laughs> <laughs> because you're
0: fearless. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um i You know nothing they 'll get to the point where i'm sure where you feel a plunging you know and um and it's you know terrifying in that, in that regard too, but you know nothing. you just suspended over uh over the traffic you know forty stories below, but you know it did make me think well made me think of a lot of different things, but one is that we're evolutionarily wired to react to space in hyper instinctive ways right so you don't step out and uh, you, know, uh, you know the height is fearful the thing flying at your head makes you want to duck you know when the v- you, I'm sure you know this from film history the very first film audiences had to be trained over years really to stop jumping out of the way when a train came directly at the screen well or that water is supposedly
1: was- is an apocryphal story that that first Lumiere Brothers train made people run out of the theater <laughs> But but it is certainly true that people had to learn to watch movies, and that some people were extremely unsettled by what they saw.
2: But doesn't it also say that you unlearn the spectacular in order to enter the narrative, right? So I can see how what's spectacular about this, if it doesn't mitigate, will lend itself to gaming but not to storytelling, right?
1: Well, it'll oh, change storytelling. Steve.
2: Really? I, I don't... You really think that, that we're going to go from flatties to... <laughs> I do. Give me... The, what's the other word? There's got to be I something. didn't Roundies?
0: I, roundies? <laughs>
1: All the way aroundies? I don't know. I don't Depthies? think we've come up with that one. Depthies? Depthies? <laughs> I like that one. Well, I mean, I think it could change storytelling in some interesting ways. I have no idea what they will be, but for example, when in the, in the Bill Clinton demo, right? There was this one that was sort of a straightforward piece of almost like a, a PSA for Bill Clinton's Global Initiative where you start off in Bill Clinton's office and you're frontally facing him at his desk as he talks about the initiative. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a very exciting, very exciting demo. <laughs> You're right in Bill Clinton's office, and you'll never guess what happens.
2: That is a slate double plus. <laughs>
1: Bill Clinton's fault he's made it impossible to talk about him without double entendres but, but, so, but when you're in that space it's a 360 degree space so if you get bored with Bill's talking about his initiative you can turn around you can look at the books on his shelf you can start or did you the things
0: in the room. that one of the books on his desk was just called Hubris but then, <laughs> <laughs> but then I couldn't focus like I kept trying to peer in to see who wrote it and why someone thought it was a good idea to have a book called Hubris
3: <laughs>
1: I did notice hubris, and it was impossible not to notice all of those things. And it made me think about the idea of storytelling in that format and the fact that it might start to resemble... Gaming or some other sort of um, some other medium in which you choose the viewer chooses what to look at, right? I mean, which of course already happens to some degree in a cinema verite kind of film where you know there's not just one thing to look at. But the idea that the viewer has that role that you're deciding where to go within the scene seems to open up huge possibilities. Okay,
2: so Julia, at one extreme, the entire species crawls into this thing and is never seen or heard of again, right? At the at the other extreme, this is just we, you know, the we wand. You know, times fifty, right? It's just an—it's just an absolutely fucking awesome Xbox. I just don't see this as—you know—a threshold moment for human consciousness and narrative. I, as blown away by it as I was, I just don't
0: maybe you're right when I think about the experiences we had today so the other thing we saw was a short film called Henry which was meant to showcase kind of the cinematic potential and I thought it was definitely the weakest and least interesting because it takes least advantage of the fact that you're there in the space so it's a story about a lonely hedgehog who doesn't have any friends because whenever he hugs them he pokes them with his prickles (laughs) exactly uh, and you're like seated in his charming little toadstool home or it's in like a hollow tree and there's like, it's, it's kind of neat, you look around the hollow tree. Uh, and then it's his birthday and nobody comes and you, but you're seated at the table so you, so i kept expecting the story to somehow engage me and have the, the have like some super meta story where you can be his friend because you're virtual so he could hug you and you wouldn't get prickled cuz you're not there <laughs> <laughs> but then it just turns out to be this like you you're not in the story and he actually never looks at you and you just like wait and then uh, he pops some balloon dogs and then they like help him become friends with a turtle, has the shell so they can hug. <laughs> it's nice. Um, but but right, so it, it when you get accustomed to the interaction and the I guess I'm basically maybe rethinking my sneering at your notion that this is not suited for narrative now that I say this. But I don't know, like the potential of that, the potential of creating a narrative experience that did incorporate you somehow and was not fully a game, like the point wasn't to shoot the thing or jump on the ice ledge, but that did somehow immerse you, I I don't know. I feel like that's where we're headed. I feel like it has to be. Really? Oh, my Lord.
2: <laughs> I left the VR world longing for an actual guitar, an actual tennis racket, or an actual good old-fashioned you know, Gutenberg revolution book, right? I mean, didn't you just think... I can put on this mask and I can enter this 3D world and I can pick up a ping pong paddle. And <laughs> right the most amazing thing it's gonna do is simulate the stuff that you do outside of it.
1: But that's just because the people that are creating those things right now are software developers and cognitive scientists. They're not artists. I mean, I think that when the medium is, is out there for, for other people to use, other uses for it will be discovered. I agree that there was a strange um, disequilibrium between the, the perceptual intensity of of what we were experiencing and then the actual content which was basically goofy games and hedgehogs and shooting at clowns and things like that but even as a non-gamer and someone who wouldn't really care about the gaming applications I was more I don't know um, excited and overwhelmed by the possibilities of the technology than I expected I would be. Yeah it's weird because you're having such a trippy
0: experience doing something that's actually mundane and you're but but my response was not like I should just go do the mundane thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Like to
0: me it felt like the possibilities for entertainment, for gaming, obviously with the times today for journalism, for education too, for business, for long distance communication, for for almost um like it it feels a little bit like teleportation. The, the the you know journalistically the the after you hang out in Bill Clinton's office, you get to go with him to various corners of remote Africa where um, he's helping various people with various things, apparently. And but you get to see these these you know vistas that you are mostly places, certainly that I'd never been to, and you feel, there are. than Yeah, you there's a
1: moment when you're on a street corner in Nairobi. It's just a normal street corner with buses going by and a newsstand, and you can look around and see people walking by. And it, I was thinking about the, the possibilities for travelogues, which was one of the big, big things that was done with early cinema, is that there were these things called Hales Tours, where they would simulate a train, and you would sit in the train and look out the window and sort of imagine you could travel to places that, that you couldn't travel to. And so the idea of it as a kind of a, a way of exploring corners of the world seemed fascinating. Mm-hmm.
2: And then the novelty wears off and people just tell stories with it. But um, All right, anyway, it's Oculus, <laughs> it's, it's Oculus Rift. Uh, it's a technology that maybe some of our listeners have used. If you have, come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us what your experience of it is and then make a uh, baseless prediction about the future of the human race. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor.
0: It sure is, Steve. We are sponsored today by the American Heart Association. Whether you love playing with parachutes or preferred kickball, Phys Ed is a great way for kids to get regular physical activity, which is associated with a healthier, longer life and a lower risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Physically fit children also perform better academically, exhibit better classroom behavior, and have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is urging Congress to save phys ed. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, strong physical education policy should be a top priority. But some lawmakers want to do away with physical education altogether. Learn more and take action at heart.org slash let them play.
3: Hi, Nikki Tomlin
0: here. And I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s.
3: Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, um,
1: sounds like a no.
3: Well, we don't really know what it is. Or mess for that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message
0: on iTunes. All right, Steve, what's
2: next? Thank you, Julia. All right, moving on. Let me be blunt, subtlety sucks. This statement might anger you. Most of us take for granted that subtlety in the arts is a virtue. So writes Slate's own Forrest Wickman in his polemic against subtlety. The real virtue Wickman argues is actually bluntness. As he says, when artists don't muffle themselves in service of subtlety subtlety, or in fear of being called unsubtle, they kindle fervor and fire. When we dispense with subtlety, we're rewarded with work that resonates in every seat in the theater, not just in the orchestra section. And the more a work has something important to convey, the more it should, be, it should not be subtle. Julia, do you believe this argument or did you just publish it?
0: <laughs> I think this argument is really interesting. And I thought, yeah, I, well, I don't know if I agree with it, but I know Forrest believes it. And I liked the way he argued it. And that's why I published it.
2: What did you think Steve? <laughs> I'm moving over here to this one. Um, Dana, it's, I did think it was a very interesting piece, though I disagreed with it, but when I tried to refute it, I had a lot of trouble, which is always even more interesting. I tried to refute the piece by thinking of great, virtuous acts of aesthetic subtlety, and I came up pretty empty-handed, and surely one of the most convincing aspects of his argument is his recitation of works that are inviolably great you know, uh, give me a few that he cites—Great Gadsby, Dickens—that and... Dickens, um, are in fact quite heavy-handed and blunt in many of their effects. What, what was your reaction to this?
1: Oh, I, I really—I mean, I, I don't think it's an agree or disagree kind of case. I think this is sort of a slate pitch for the ages, you know, but in but in the best sense. Um,
2: <laughs> Putting the B back in subtlety.
1: Like I think I think, <laughs> 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 I mean. First of all, it's very, very well argued, right? We, we should mention, I don't think we have mentioned this, but wasn't Forrest our very first intern at the Slate Culture Gab Fest? And do you, years remember, ago? How,
2: do you remember how he got the job?
1: Yes, because he called you wait, I'm trying to remember the full
0: phrase. In his cover letter for the application, he called Steve a heterosexual Nancy boy. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, you're hired. <laughs>
1: And he identified, right? He said, like Steve, I'm a heterosexual Nancy boy, and that's why I'm, I'm right for well, this Well, he job. fell
2: right into my trap, which was to give him the job, uh, promote him to an actual ed- contributing editor, have him write an argument about subtlety, and then have me thrash it <laughs> to within an inch <laughs> of its life this on This has stage. been a very,
1: very long con, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Played I mean, I game. felt
1: the need to mention that because Forrest and I actually corresponded about this. He told me that he wanted to write something in defense of, of the anvil, in defense of heavy-handedness, and we emailed back and forth some ideas about it. I will note that none of my ideas directly ended up in the piece, but I like to think that they informed the background of it, and, uh, and it was a great discussion. So even though probably as a critic I'm much more likely to champion subtlety um, than not, I think I'm going to start using that word more advisedly after, after reading this and thinking about it, because I think that it has become a code as he, says, as he says in the essay a kind of a lazy code for a lot of qualities that are deemed positive in works of art and we don't necessarily think through why are those things deemed positive and what would the opposite be and for example at one point he distinguishes between subtlety and nuance in a way that I don't quite get but he seemed to be saying that you know there can be, there can be works of art that, that have the qualities, the positive qualities that we attribute to something that's subtle but without relying on that easy signifier if that makes sense so, for example, <laughs> I was trying to think of, and maybe you or someone from the audience can, can contribute here, a work of art that's nuanced but not subtle. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
2: all right, we'll table that one. If you can come up with one of those, you're better, better than I am. But, um, all right, I agree with the following parts of the argument. First, subtlety can very often be flattery aimed at the too-knowing, right? Secondly, literary modernism was an in-language or could often be construed as an in-language for writers maladapted to mass culture and the dawn of the 20th century. True. I agree with that, too. The third uh, prong of his critique, when it gets specific, is uh, close reading in English classes is a technique for making a certain kind of professor and a certain kind of student appear clever. Um, These all seem to me directed more at the type of person who congratulates themselves for having a highly refined sensibility, but it seems to me he misconstrues exactly where it is subtlety is in a work, so it doesn't really especially matter whether Dickens uses these quasi-allegorical names that are meant to kind of thud you over the head a little bit with what the character is. It's more that the or, for example, the way, I mean, he's very right about this, right? The Wasteland or Hamlet, the, the virtue, or, or Madame Bovary, or uh, he, there are some other ones that he, he mentions. Citizen
0: um, Kane.
2: Citizen Kane, right? Like, it, it is true that heavy handedness, when it works, is virtuous, but it's not true that the effect that it's producing isn't subtle. Boom. <laughs>
1: Well, that's what I mean about this this word becoming a code word for a lot of other categories that might be more interesting to talk about than just to hang the label subtle on something and say, therefore, it's good. I mean, there isn't any critical term that can always represent, you know, that can be an unquestioned good. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as as criticism, right? There can't be any single value that's elevated to be the, the value that matters. And to the degree that, you know... This kind of educated consumer of, of art uses subtlety as a term of praise. I think that that has happened. And it excludes, for example, a lot of genres that by definition are not subtle and yet can contain works of great art like camp, you know, melodrama, mm-hmm. horror, right. pornography. I mean, you know, there there are huge areas of human endeavor that operate on on other terms,
2: mm-hmm. among the things I liked very much about the essays, he makes hay of the um, Ernest Hemingway theory that I'd never heard it called this before—the iceberg theory, which is Hemingway really discovered himself as a writer in 1923, according to Hemingway, when he excluded details that he thought would be central to a short story of his. And the more he took out, the more power he found the story had. And the idea is that the the iceberg obviously is on the surface, but what's looming and horrifying about the iceberg is the mass of it is hidden and implied. I like to think of Forrest's theory as the iceberg lettuce theory. (laughs) Which uh, means that a preference for anything other than the equivalent of iceberg lettuce can be construed as a form of uh, bourgeois self-loathing or or bourgeois self-congratulation. You can purpose it either way you like.
0: (laughs) I think that's right. I mean, I I don't know. I feel like the thing that struck me in the piece most was a cringing moment of self-identification of a fondness for deriding things for being, quote, on the nose. On the nose is a term that, as Forrest points out, used to mean, like, right on the nose, hooray, you hit the target, you shot the clown with your virtual stun gun, and you nailed it. Uh, and it has come to mean, like, oh, it's too on the nose. Like, you're aiming for something, but if you get there too directly and too thuddingly, then somehow you've gone too far. And I thought, um, it's certainly something, I, I think it's a term I learned from my husband who's here tonight uh, and works in the television business, and it's something that people say when they talk about scripts and script development all the time. That's a little on the nose when you know, something happens that seems, seems too obvious or to telegraph too, too directly uh, what you're supposed to take away. And, and it does make me wonder, like part of the satisfaction of appreciating a work is feeling like your mind can play around with all that's implied and try to understand exactly the size and scope of the iceberg underneath. Um, and if a work has no depth, then it's not that fun to engage with. But if, you know, if you're, if you're just like hoping it's obscured so that you can have the pleasure of dusting it off, that's like a very weird and particular pleasure. And I remember like an early experience with this was, I think before ninth grade, we had to read East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is like a, a great gripping yarn, but... Has some slightly heavy-handed symbolism in it because uh, it has—it's a parable, and it sort of reflects back the Cain and Abel story. And all of the really bad characters' names start with C, but all of the good characters' names start with A. And when you read it in ninth grade and you figure that out, you're like, "Whoa, <laughs> cool literature!" And then, I mean, I haven't read it as an adult, but it seems moronic, or at least it seems a little on the nose, right? And and I I hope to. Uh, continue and cling to my ability to not think that seems like the most subtle way to make that point and to feel like that's bad and it's okay to think that that's bad Right. but I enjoyed uh, having my uh, assumptions about subtlety challenged
2: hmm. well look if a work thinks and feels for you you're not going to have the thoughts and feelings that it might have evoked and secondly to the degree that much Of what passes for reality does happen beneath the surface, then art can and should reflect that, right? And to the degree that art begins reflecting something internal to itself, its own, you know, involute subtleties and in in language, then it's become um, decadent and useless. But, you know, there are some qualities that life has that art reflects, and subtlety can be one of them, right? Yeah. Okay. All
1: right. (laughs) I mean, just my, one last thing. It just uh, in this in this correspondence with Forrest, when, when we were trying to come up with a definition of subtlety, one of the ones that I hazarded was that that a subtle work of art is one that uses sort of the minimum the minimum gesture to communicate the maximal meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And that is something that's that's valued by many critics, including me. I mean, if I named my ten favorite films or directors, they would probably all in some way be classifiable as using subtlety, right? But. There's also such. There's a place for maximalism in art as well, right? It's, it's in opera. It's in you know all kinds of art that paints emotions huge, you know, and that that it tries to evoke maximalist emotion and response rather than minimalist. And I think, insofar as Forrest was making a space for that kind of work too, it seemed like a very valuable essay. Even if you continue to enjoy dusting off your art before you read it.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the piece is called "Against Subtlety." It's by that Nancy boy, Forrest Wickman. It's on Slate. Check it out. Let us know what you think about it at facebook.com slash culturefest now, I believe, is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day not, 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 hmm. not,
1: not. <laughs> Okay. Um, I was going to endorse this anyway at some point, but it ends up working out perfectly with our with our VR segment, so I, I will endorse it today. I thought of this when when we were deciding whether or not to step off the virtual ledge at Facebook today with the Oculus Rift. It's a... Uh, it's a Film, a very short film, about two minutes long, from 1902. Uh, it's called Uncle Josh at the Moving Picture Show. <laughs> it was it was directed by Edwin S. Porter, who the next year, 1903, would go on to make this very important 11-minute film called The Great Train Robbery. That's often credited as sort of being the first suspense movie um, that had cross-cutting and parallel action. And
2: is that the one where the audience jumped out of the way when they showed it, when the train <laughs> was coming? Um, yeah.
1: It when it. The, the <laughs> <laughs> that was a Lumiere Brothers movie, but but so the the Edwin S. Porter movie from 1902 is is just a still camera. It's very short, and and it shows this this country rube named Uncle Josh. Watching a movie being projected on a on a screen on a hanging sheet, and he responds in exactly the way Steve was describing. he you know a woman dances comes and does the can can, and he gets all excited and comes and tries to grab this woman on the screen and Then a couple fights and he tries to break up the fight he 's kind of trying to interact with the screen in this way and it's it's fascinating because both of this portrait of the man who doesn't know how to watch movies yet and also because you just get this um, just a, you get to go back in time and see how movies were projected back in 1902 so the projection is just actually behind the sheet and there's a moment the sheet falls it's quite, there's quite a lot of complex storytelling going on in this little two minute interaction of Uncle Josh and the movie screen and it just occurred to me today that that was all of us at Facebook you know we were learning to interact in the same way and, and really by not jumping off the edge we were every bit as much of a rube as, as Uncle Josh Um, so it's it's an Edison picture you can probably find it on YouTube I think I watched it at the Library of Congress but it's out there Uncle Josh at the moving picture show
2: excellent Julia what do you have
0: Uh, I am going to recommend a book that I just read that I really enjoyed that I think is both subtle and unsubtle in ways that I liked a lot Uh, and I'm still thinking about it and still parsing apart its meaning the book is called Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff and it is a twin set of stories. It has a first half and a second half. And it is a portrait of a marriage. The first half of the book is from the perspective of the husband, who is a uh, talented golden boy named Lancelot. Um, and his wife, Mathilde, is a cipher. And until you get to the second half of the book, where all of her secrets are revealed. And it's kind of pulpy and very well written on a sentence level and um, has all sorts of allusions to various Greek things that I haven't figured out yet. Uh, There's also like a Greek chorus that kind of recurs throughout uh, the book in an interesting way. And I just loved it. I read it um, very absorbedly for a couple weeks. So Fates and Furies by
2: Lauren Groff. Excellent. All right, I'm endorsing an actor, an actor named Bob Balaban. Ah. <clears throat> I, I love you for that smattering of applause <laughs> um, I am endorsing not so much an actor named Bob Balaban As the ubiquity of Bob Balaban For once you notice Bob Balaban You notice that he's in everything It's like you woke up one day and like cilantro was in everything you ate <laughs> And no one had ever told you And you're like, fucking cilantro in my cereal but, it, but it's awesome because you love cilantro, because it's the Bob Balaban of food. <laughs> um, anyway, so from Close Encounters, to Show Me a Hero, uh, he was recently in the MLK movie, I believe, isn't he? Anyway, so uh, I-, I just discovered that Bob Balaban wrote a book. Back in the 1970s, uh, he, one of his first role, movie roles was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He plays, the, uh, he was supposed to be the translator for Truf- on-screen translator for Truffaut, plays a huge part in Close Encounters and he lied to Spielberg about how much French he knew and they sort of struggled through it and when they started doing reshoots and posts Spielberg was like, um, you're a cartographer now in the movie <laughs> who speaks a little bit of French um, this mu- must have actually been what he really did he must have kept a daily diary because it's, it's so funny it's clever, it's beautifully written it shows this enormous appreciation for both who Francois Truffaut is in the history of movies and who Spielberg is and is about to become in the history of movies and how those two things are blending perfectly on the set of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's a truly wonderful description of the making of that film. And then the funny thing is, uh, one day my wife and I were driving along, we're huge Bob Balaban fans and we're in Brooklyn. (laughs) And I would love to tell you a lie and say at that moment we were talking about our love for Bob Balaban, but we were stopped at a red light and we looked over at the car next to us and there was Bob Balaban <laughs> One of my favorite moments And I was telling all of these Bob Balaban stories To my daughter the other day And we're, dri- we're actually driving along And she's laughing and laughing and laughing It's one of, one of those magic moments When you see both yourself And the young woman that she's becoming In her, pro- in, in her profile And then you notice that she has Her earbuds in <laughs> And the reason she's laughing is she's listening to Welcome to Night Vale. (laughs) That's our show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait. Can I jump in on Bob Balaban? Because I have to tell you something that your daughter will be excited about. Well, Bob Balaban writes lots of things. For one thing, I think he may have co-written Gosford Park with Julian Fellows, but I'm not totally sure about that. But he's definitely written screenplays. And he wrote a children's book. He wrote a chapter book for children about a dog. I can't remember the title of it right now. But, um, yeah, so so you can introduce your daughter to... um, Literature by Bob Balaban.
2: (laughs) (laughs) One-upping me on the Bob Balaban. Thanks, then. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much, San Francisco, for coming out and listening to us shoot the shit. It was a total pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm always drunk in San Francisco
3: I always Out of my mind But if you've been to San Francisco They say that things like this go on
2: Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet?
1: And we were all sitting here
3: this year waiting on these three December movies that no one has seen.
2: Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply.